Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. My guest today is David Smith, the Washington Bureau Chief of the Guardian newspaper, the great British newspaper, which now has a large readership in the United States, indeed has a whole United States edition. Uh, it is very influential. It's also got a certain asset, and that is it doesn't have a paywall so that you don't read two paragraphs of the newspaper and suddenly you can't read anymore without sending money. It is my pleasure to have David on the broadcast today. Not only has he worked in Washington and London, but he also was the Africa Bureau Chief for The Guardian. David, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Would it be reasonable, for, it's my pleasure, would it be reasonable for me to say that uh, you'll have wreckage in Washington and wreckage in London. And how much worse is the wreckage in Washington? Well, it's hard to compare, but yes, um, both countries are absolutely devastated by the coronavirus pandemic um, and the economic uh, fallout. Um, some would say two of the worst performers in the world, uh, really. I think uh, Britain, uh, I believe, has the, the highest uh, death toll in Europe. Uh, America has the highest death toll on the whole planet. Um, uh, many would say uh, the people responsible for that are the, the leaders, uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, uh, both of whom symbolically enough uh, became infected themselves with coronavirus. Uh, uh, and their kindred spirit there would be Bolsonaro um, in Brazil, of course. Um, and um, it's taken a terrible economic toll on both countries, even as China surges ahead and is already growing again. Um, uh, clearly, uh, in America, millions of jobs have been lost. Um, it's not much better in Britain, um, although there was a different government approach to uh, state funding of, uh, of wages, uh, a huge um, investment in the arts sector, which, of course, has been wiped out. Um, and, of course, the, the National Health Service, which is... Uh, I was just reading under the, the biggest strain in its history of more than 70 years trying to, to cope with this. Um, so, uh, you know, so often America and Britain do seem to go hand in hand. And, and sadly, that's uh, the case again um, with the pandemic and the economic fallout. Of course, you have an interest in the arts. Your wife is a well-known American actress. Uh, it uh, must have been quite rough not, uh, not being able to work. Has it changed your home life? I mean, normally an actress works at night and suddenly <laughs> you're married 24-7, as the rest of us are. How is that going, David? Oh, we're, we're doing fine, thank you. Um, yeah, my, my wife, uh, Andrea Harris-Smith, uh, was just in a play at the Studio Theatre in Washington um, exactly a, a year ago, and uh, it's... Uh, somewhat eerie looking back at the photos of the opening night. Uh, there's a, a packed audience, uh, there's, there's cast members mingling together afterwards. Um, that whole way of life uh, has been wiped out. Let's come back to what we should be talking about, although I always like to talk about the theater, having once been a theater critic in Washington. Uh, uh, how do you see the Biden administration? I read, I think it was this morning that he has a choice between governing and being liked. And these two may be in some uh, considerable contention. Yes, look, it's uh, arguably the, the toughest inheritance for any president uh, since Franklin Roosevelt and the Great Depression. 
Um, uh, it's fairly familiar territory to Biden, having been with Barack Obama when he uh, took over during an economic crisis. Um, it's extremely difficult. And But we were talking about um, theater. I, I just interviewed one academic who said this is analogous to the end of Richard III. The, the, the exciting, charismatic despot uh, is leaving and being replaced by, by boring Henry VII, who at least is a, a steady hand of government. So I think Biden um, is going to, first of all, tackle the coronavirus pandemic, trying to get 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. Uh, there's a, a $1.9 trillion economic recovery package. Now, in, in theory, if people on the ground feel the effects of those things, um, governing well and popularity will actually uh, dovetail quite nicely. Um, but I think um, the, the downside is if, if things go wrong, and it is very tough, it would be tough for any president, then of course he will get blamed. Of course, there's a very noisy um, element of Donald Trump supporters who uh, still believe the election was stolen, who will be looking to attack Biden, backed by conservative media. So um, it's going to be a very rough ride. Uh, Biden is arguably the best person to do this as a bridge builder, as someone who's uh, worked across the aisle. But uh, there are those who say he's very naive, that Washington politics has changed a lot, and um, you know, give him about five minutes before he's uh, coming under fire, not only from the Republican right, but, but also uh, progressives on his uh, left flank who say he's not moving fast enough. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that he's going to have to deal with is the high expectation uh, level of expectation he has from the progressives. For example, it is said that he is going to immediately cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Well, this has been fought over for 15 years, involves international relations because it's very precious to Canada. And almost without any due process, he's going to say he's going to yank the, he's going to yank the permits. That's uh, not really a very good beginning if you want to bring people together. Yeah, he'll certainly uh, take some criticism uh, for that. But I, I think it's uh, an indication of um, how, for a start, the Biden presidency will be to the left of both uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, um, not only on economic um, issues and the idea of, of state intervention generally, but, but um, specifically it's a different world uh, on the climate crisis, and um, that's been identified by Biden as one of the four major crises he has to tackle, along with uh, the pandemic, uh, the economy, and racial injustice. And he signaled his intent from the start with uh, John Kerry as a climate ambassador overseas. Um, there's been uh, a, a lot of uh, involvement with the uh, the progressive left and the specifically on the issue of, of the climate crisis. So. I wasn't particularly surprised by the, the Keystone uh, decision, and I, but I, yes, I, I think it is going to be a, a point of tension going forward, um, uh, a gradual withdrawal from fossil fuels, how quickly that happens. I'm, I'm sure Republicans will, um, will seize on that to accuse uh, Biden of uh, destroying jobs, just as they tried to do during the election, but didn't really gain much traction. It's hard to say that you're going to rebuild the infrastructure if your first action is to arrest an infrastructure project. Uh, it's going to be quite, quite an explanation he's going to have to give. Uh, it does look as though it is a sort of 
uh, immediate sop to his left wing when it really wasn't, to my mind, needed. Uh, it seems to me that there are a whole bunch of things he has to do. He's in danger, maybe, of giving the climate too much emphasis and in abandoning a lot of other environmental issues, like the condition of the oceans, for example. There are many, many environmental issues besides uh, the amount of carbon which the United States puts into the air, which has decreased substantially since 2005, continues to go down, not particularly by government action, but because of uh, actions in the primarily the electric community itself, dictated not by altruism, but by economics. Coal became uneconomic. The low cost of, of wind and solar may make natural gas uneconomic. But meanwhile, it is the primary fuel burned to make electricity in this country and many others. Uh, because you want to get rid of it, doesn't mean you can do that instantly. It's, it's an extraordinary turnaround Biden has to form. Um, and uh, I, think, I think you're right in that um, he and other world leaders have to forcefully make the case that this is not just purely altruism or it's a nice thing to do, that uh, there has to be a real economic uh, imperative for it. And uh, I think Europe, arguably, especially Germany, the UK and others so far have been more persuasive on, on that. Um, it's, it's time for America to embrace that case as well. And I think what's interesting is you are seeing some of the, the old um, oil giants in the US, um, some of the old energy companies uh, and car makers actually moving themselves in that direction. And um, one of the patterns of the last four years is sometimes that the business and private sector has uh, been ahead of the federal government under Trump on, on all sorts of issues. Um, but also, the, I think the, the big question now is, just like the Conservative Party in the UK, um, will the Republican Party finally uh, understand the reality of the climate crisis and, and what needs to be done, and, and understand that um, it can be good for business and can make economic sense? Britain is facing a very special situation. It's back on its own, no longer a part of Europe. And one of the expectations, certainly fed by Trump, was that there would be some extra special relationship with the US and there would be an enormous amount of trade across the Atlantic. Um, how do you see that shaping up? And uh, is Britain, will Britain be correct in looking to the US for enhanced trade and a better relationship? Or was that simply a political pipe dream? I think more a pipe dream. Um, I think it's, uh, Britain is not in a good place right now um, with this. Um, uh, there was a sense in, in 2020, um, America corrected what, what I would argue was a horrendous mistake. Joe Biden can restore the country to some sort of norms um, and deal with all these crises. Uh, the UK, however, just uh, dug in deeper on its mistake, as, as I would see it, and I think most of my Guardian colleagues would, uh, that uh, Brexit is a very poor choice, will have all sorts of uh, economic negative implications and diminish Britain's place in the world. And of course, Brexit was confirmed rubber stamped um, at the last, uh, in the, an hour before midnight, a, a trade deal was struck with the EU, but 
now it leaves Britain um, isolated in the world and I think dropping down the rankings, certainly in terms of uh, America's perception, uh, it's striking that during the presidential debates between uh, Biden and Trump, uh, the word Brexit was never uttered once. And uh, if you're sitting in the White House now, your biggest concerns are um, China um, and Europe as a block and, and Britain is somewhere down the list. And if you're at the State Department and you want to know what's going on in Europe, I think you probably, you're less likely to call London now as a gateway. You're more likely to call uh, Berlin or, or Paris. Um, and then on top of all of that, um, you know, Johnson and Trump were somewhat kindred spirits, even in their appearance and in their busting of norms and their larger than life personalities. So there was hope for a speedy trade deal and an extra special relationship there. Um, sadly, that for Britain, that's that's over now. Um, I think Biden and many Democrats uh, think uh, Brexit is a terrible idea. Uh, Biden and Johnson have never met, so we'll see how that goes. I think many Democrats remember certain comments Johnson has made in the past, for example, um, criticizing Obama's uh, Kenyan ancestry and as making him biased against the British Empire. So it's, it's not a good um, recipe. Uh, the UK's best hopes, I think, are the fact that it is investing in defense. There will remain an important uh, intelligence and military partner. Uh, it's investing in the climate crisis, which is certainly in tune with Biden's priorities. And of course, this year, the UK will host uh, the G7 uh, and a big uh, climate uh, summit. So there's some way to getting it back on track with, with Biden, who is a pragmatist, but, but overall, I think a trade deal is uh, a long way off and um, Brexit will actually harm rather than help um, the UK's relationship with the US. Something that governments, democratic governments across the world have to deal with is disinformation, fake news, uh, both spread by governments and by individuals and by political entities. How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to know what the truth is? Eastern Europe is very worried about disinformation flowing out of Russia. In this country, we have the example under the Trump administration where an awful lot of people came to believe that Trump won the election because he said so, and because what he said was backed up on social media by his supporters. Uh, you and I are in the information business and have been all of our professional careers, and yet we don't have the same impact now as, say, a, dis, a misinformed statement on social media. And the media companies are trying to deal with this, but they become censors. What are your feelings about this whole ball of wax, this whole mess that is information, disinformation, and our role as journalists trying to unravel some of it? Yeah, it is a mess. I think uh, Barack Obama has recently identified disinformation as the number one threat to uh, democracy uh, for a, a private company to have that power to, to effectively silence the president of the United States um, is a tricky thing. And um, what does that mean uh, for the future? You also hear just generally uh, you know, a lot of people with much more expertise than me being asked what are we going to do about this disinformation crisis? And they will often hold up their hands and say, I don't know. <laughs> it is such a, such a knotty, tricky problem. And you can, you can certainly see some of the moves in Congress against um, the Section 230 law, um, suggesting that at least internet companies 
should police harder and be held responsible for the content on their platforms. And the, the Twitter ban on Trump was one example of that. So um, I, I think we should and probably will see more pressure from civil society, more pressure from politicians, from the law, for internet companies to regulate um, what, what appears. But um, I don't know if that will be enough. I don't know if that can hoover up every website out there. And then also, uh, is anybody literally going to walk into the Fox News studio and say, you, you, you know, you must stop pushing Trump's conspiracy theories? Uh, I would feel un uneasy if they did, and I think a lot of people would. So it's, uh, I, I, like all those other pundits I mentioned, I, I don't really have a satisfactory answer for you. I think that you have to find uh, some third way, uh, and that is maybe a new kind of concept of libel to hold the people, and maybe you have to go along and remove the 230 protections that the, that the common carriers have, uh, Twitter, etc. Maybe you have to remove those and substitute a libel regime, uh, but where it's third, where it's not the common carrier, not the tech company that is censoring, but society as a whole. And we've had that work pretty well in the general media for a long time. Where if you said something outrageous about someone in print or, or even verbally, uh, you were dragged into court, more so in Britain and in the US, but even in the US, I know I used to be a publisher, paid for Bible insurance. Uh, we have to have that third way, that, that, that break, but for the company that carries the information to apply the break would seem to me to be more than dangerous. It would seem to me to be suicidal long-term. It gives a power that no government has to private companies. And that's quite extraordinary. And international uh, private companies. Uh, but going back, David, to disinformation, it's not just an American problem. It's a huge problem, particularly in Eastern Europe, where the, the disinformation, the lies coming out of Russia are in a torrent. They have a huge setup in Russia just producing disinformation, which they feed into, uh, uh, into, uh, into the internet and elsewhere, but also the stage events. I was told in Eastern Europe, for example, if you heard there were skinheads, and this happened, I think, in Lithuania, I'm not quite certain, um, they sent reporters down, and there indeed were skinheads stirring it up. But in reality, they were Russian agents. They weren't skinheads. We don't know what the truth is anymore, and we're going to have to find mechanisms for finding it, which was the old role of journalism, but I'm not sure we're capable of doing it anymore. It's... Um... Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Um, when you think of you know, George Orwell's 1984 or uh, Stalin's Soviet Union and, and, and others, uh, there's that, there, and, and Russia today, there is that uh, original concept of disinformation being something very centrally organized by a state and trying to brainwash people and organizing fake rallies and so on. And uh, from that perspective, for a long time, America, other Western liberal democracies were, were much healthier. It was a it was a free for all. Anybody could write anything. But but now, it transpires that, that even the free for all, um, the the well of information can get poisoned very quickly. Um, and it's not necessarily well. Some would say with with Trump it was, but in general, not necessarily a central state government doing it. But private companies, private individuals can get 
can, can push lies uh, very far. Um, and one of the, the biggest challenges now for Joe Biden's presidency is going to be how to bring those people back, um, if, if you like. Um, you know, there were 74 million who voted for Donald Trump, which was a record for an incumbent president and second only to Biden's total. It's fair to assume there's a very significant chunk of those 74 million who are more sort of moderate and will listen to Biden and uh, and, and are gettable. But uh, all the evidence we see in, in surveys in, in people that uh, I interviewed just a couple of weeks ago at a Trump rally in Georgia, where they were, you know, not, not one of them believed Biden was the legitimate winner. Some of them were talking about stocking up rounds of ammunition for civil unrest and so on. Uh, the, the people who've disappeared down rabbit holes on, on the um, internet with QAnon, um, how, how does Biden, how does any president uh, try to connect with them when they, they appear to be occupying an alternative sense of uh, reality? And you know, this is the impact of uh, technology and the, and the internet that, um, that there's no playbook for uh, based on the past. Isn't the great challenge for Biden to change the subject, to get off these contentious issues and not to look as though his only purpose is to reverse everything that Trump did, but to go to a new place uh, to uh, change the subject. And isn't that going to be the challenge for Boris Johnson too, as the fallout from leaving Europe becomes more apparent? Yes, um, uh, the current subject is, is so dreadful. Um, I think they do have to try to change it. Um, um, Biden, you know, his entire campaign framing, of course, was uh, redeeming the, the soul of America. Um, and uh, he celebrated for being empathetic and, and, and a healer. Uh, I'm not sure I've yet detected the the, the change of subjects um, you're, you're alluding to in, in what he's come up with in the, in the way that uh, Barack Obama, it was all about uh, hope and change and uh, this sort of image of uh, a, a new, exciting America. Um, Biden feels more like sort of triage and, and, and fixing what's, um, what, what, what's broken. And, and so many, um, uh, Boris Johnson um, elected with a, a healthy majority, there, there seemed to be promise there of a, of a fresh start, but of course it's been completely dragged down uh, by the pandemic um, and, and all those um, troubles. So um, I think early on in, in both cases, it's gonna be, be hard to escape the uh, current uh, paradigm. Um, and uh, you know, neither of them are sort of young, fresh faces as we've seen sometimes elected in the past, whether it's uh, John F. Kennedy in America or um, Tony Blair in, in Britain. Um, but 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 uh, certainly, uh, it, it is crucial for someone like Biden to to yeah, get away from this uh, hyper partisanship uh, on every issue. Um, just the 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 poison of the Trump years, and and try and move the nation on from there. Early in the broadcast, you made reference to how China has come out of its troubles with the pandemic and is in fact showing economic growth, quite substantial and healthy economic growth, while the democracies are not doing very well at all. Uh, we are going to have to deal with China collectively or we're going to be split in two. What do you think the result will be? Do you think that Europe will go into a separate camp dealing with China and leave the US to deal with it separately? 
or do you think that we will hold together and have a common front in the issues that confront us vis-a-vis -vis China? I don't know. I would um, I would suspect uh, the the latter. Um, I think uh, some of um, Joe Biden's early work will be uh, rebuilding all those alliances with uh, European partners. Um, if you remember how close, for example, Barack Obama was to Angela Merkel and um, and, 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 and you know, Trump tore that up for four years, but uh, with, with Anthony Blinken as Secretary of State, um, I, I think um, uh, almost almost quicker than some of the domestic issues, I think um, Biden will be able to restore um, some of the, the old international status quo, and it, it won't take long for America and Europe to realize they have more shared interests in, uh, in solidarity and that uh, China is an authoritarian government that does, th does things very differently and, um, and does pose um, a, a threat. Um, uh, some could argue that uh, Trump, perhaps slightly inadvertently, perhaps clumsily, did at least sound the alarm about the rise of China in a way that past presidents have not done and has, has put that issue on the map. Um, Biden, I would assume, would take a more sophisticated approach and, and realize that um, it maybe won't quite sort of revive the Trans-Pacific Partnership in Asia, but, but realize that um, uh, America and Europe uh, really need each other at this moment when, um, with, when China is uh, on the ascendant. David, in conclusion, what cheerful news do you have for us? How is the Guardian doing in America, for example? <laughs> well, I'll very quickly say, um, I think it was tremendously cheerful news that despite everything, including that onslaught of disinformation you talk about, uh, the American system held and um, record number of voters during an election, during an election uh, Trump judges throughout uh, Trump's lawsuits and, and Biden uh, is the president. Um, and as for The Guardian, um, you know, we've had a very successful year, particularly um, within the US, uh, sometimes 9 million readers a day, sometimes more. And actually, um, despite the pandemic uh, done relatively well financially, um, the website is completely free for everyone to access. Um, you know, we believe there should not be a price on, uh, on information, and that's obviously relevant to the issue of tackling um, disinformation out there. But also our, our model encourages readers to uh, make donations, um, like sort of public sector broadcasting. And, and that, that's been tremendously successful. We're very grateful for all those who have uh, given money to, to help uh, Guardian journalism uh, keep going. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And nine million visitors on a website is pretty impressive. Uh, really quite extraordinary. Good luck to you. Thank you. And all the best. Cheers. Thanks very and that, much. That is our show for today. Do remember, you can relax. You're working at home. You don't really need to wear a tie. I do. I don't know why. But wear the masks. I've become so used to the mask, I think it's a normal state of affairs. Although I would like to know what people look like. You know, when somebody's serving you at a store or yeah, even when you walk past them in the street, you do wonder what they really look like. That will be such a bonus when we know again what people look like. Until next week, all the best. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, 
Wherever you listen, we are there.